All right. Um, well, if you will, uh, turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. Now, at the close of chapter 3 is the tragic removal of Adam and Eve from the garden. And as they are removed from the garden, uh, we now move into a new narrative. And this is the birth of the family. This is Adam and Eve uh, having kids. And what a story it is. Uh, we got fratricide. We got all kinds of kids. Let's, uh, let's begin with, uh, with the text. Verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. I want to just, uh, just begin there and, and uh, note that this is a frequent euphemism um, for sexual relations in Scripture. Uh, but it's also something that's worth noting because it's, it's an essential ingredient to understanding at the heart of what it means to be image bearers of God. Uh, and sexual intimacy in the confines of the marriage covenant is meant to be that place where shame, the shame that has come through the fall, um, the, the, the hiddenness that came from the fall is, is put away. God has created a covenantal space where two people can, can be together in the most intimate fashion without shame in nakedness. It's the very means by which children are made. And I don't have to give you the birds and the bees tonight to just simply state this, um, that uh, our society's obsession with sex, um, but sex in a diminished form, uh, it's, it's sex as a purely, um, a, 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 a pure satisfaction for bodily urges uh, is such a sad representation of the spiritual realities of sex in Scripture uh, that when it says, and the two shall become one flesh, um, I am personally of the opinion uh, that Lewis was right when he talks about that, um, that it is a union of souls, if you will. Um, and this is why sex carelessly um, uh, casual sex actually is never casual. Um, that there is a knitting together of hearts uh, in a way that does great psychological damage uh, when treated, treated carelessly. Uh, and I, and I, just being a, a product of one who was very promiscuous uh, as a kid, and my wife was a very promiscuous woman, both of us were trying to satisfy or meet uh, needs that weren't met for us in our, in our families, whether it's chasing after the father figure or just looking for some semblance of feeling loved or seen or known. Um, there's a lot of reasons why people give themselves over to intimacy. Not to mention that sex feels good, but it is the law of diminishing returns uh, when it is outside of the confines of marriage. I like to say sex is like a fire, and it is a fire. Um, and in a fire is a wonderful thing that keeps the house warm when it's in the fireplace. If it's out of the fireplace, it burns the house down. Um, another thing to note here is the, the use of the word, uh, he knew his wife, 
uh, as a euphemism is also pointing to the spiritual reality of the significance of that the essential ingredient uh, in intimacy with God is that we know Him. Uh, these are, this is the deepest knowing uh, within the marriage uh, covenant, uh, but we are called as people to know one another. And I love that, that even sexual intimacy is, derives its meaning from knowing the other. Not in so much of casual sex of today is sleeping with strangers. You're not knowing anyone. Um, and so this is the treating of a human, another human being like an object rather than a thou. Uh, and if you guys have ever read Martin Buber, the great Hebrew philosopher, um, I am thou, he, he argues that the most essential aspect of what it means to be divine image bearers um, is our ability to know our neighbor. That the, the, the sacredness of knowing. And so I love that, that there's the... It, yes, it's a euphemism for sexual relations, but it's actually a sacred word in Scripture that has many layers of meaning and is absolutely significant to what it means to be made in the image of God. So that's all I'll say on that. Um, so Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And, and again, uh, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was the keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. Now Cain's, uh, Cain's very name uh, is connected to, uh, to that idea of creation. She's like, I have basically created a man uh, with the help of God. That I am now, I am now a co-creator, if you will. Uh, and his very name points to that reality, but his life gives meaning to that name. Uh, and this is one of those, one of those things that, that you now see uh, the transcendence, sin entering into the familial line. And this is a fascinating um, story that names actually have great significance um, in the scripture and often point to the history. The person's names actually speak to their reality of who they are and speaks of the power of naming things. But notice what it says, and she bore his brother Abel. Um, now Abel was the keeper of sheep and Cain the worker of the ground. Abel's name uh, is not defined here in the text, but the tone is ominous. Uh, Abel's name is the Hebrew word, um, uh, it's that, that word in uh, Ecclesiastes, it's Hevel. His name is Hevel. Uh, do you guys know what that means? It's, uh, when Tim Mackey taught on, on, uh, on the word Hevel in Ecclesiastes, it's, you know, it's basically just air, it's wind. Uh, he, he used, I gave him a pipe as a gift and he smoked the pipe on stage. It was like one of his first sermons. And he said, if you want to know what Hevel is, he said it's this, and he took, he's, he took in a, a mouthful of smoke and he blew it out. And then he tried to touch the smoke. He's like, that's Hevel, that's Hevel. Um, and there's an ominous reality in that Abel's very name means breath or vapor or vanity, as it's, which is speaking to the shortness of it. Um, the tragic, the tragic loss in the the the, the meaningless loss of life, uh, as we will see in the story. Now it says that Abel was a shepherd of the flock, and Cain was a worker of the ground. I, I I think it's really important. I have heard 
preachers preach on this text and make a very big deal out of the fact that um, that Abel was a shepherd and what he offers as a sacrifice to God is the, is the sacrificial lamb and the, the spilling of blood and they beat in this idea that without the, without the spilling of blood there is no forgiveness of sins um, from Hebrews and so the issue with Cain's offering is that he didn't offer a blood offering, he only offered a grain offering but that's, that's crazy and that's a deep uh, over-reading into the text uh, and I think the issue here is not what is offered. The issue is the heart behind the offering because Israel themselves offer, offered um, grain offerings to God that were accepted um, as appropriate offerings. And so uh, Cain, though, is working the ground that is cursed. I think that's important to notice. Um, Abel uh, is the shepherd and Abel, all of these things kind of point. There's these realities pointing all the way forward uh, to the ultimate shepherd and the one who will lay down his life willingly. But let's, let's go on. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry. It actually, in the Hebrew, is he burned with anger so this is this is a, an anger that's that goes beyond just like disappointment uh he's very angry and his face fell and the lord said to cain why are you angry and why is your face fallen if you do well will you not be accepted and if you do not do well sin is crouching at the door and its desire is contrary to you but you must rule over it. Um, this is an important, this is an important uh, text. And we're already, um, there's already a motif that's developing here. It's pointing back to that when the curse comes after the fall, uh, and I always like to say, God did not curse um, Adam and Eve. He cursed the ground for their sake. But the judgment that came due to the fall, the reality, the outcome, the cause and effect of that fall is one of the things is, is that word is used to, when it speaks of Eve and your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Now there's a play on that, on that statement here. Um, and God says of Cain, to Cain, sin's desire is for you, but you must roll, rule over it. Uh, notice there's a personification of sin and I don't know if you guys noticed anything but this is the first mention in scripture of sin and I think it's important for us to define that once again um, sin is implied in the fall but it actually is not called sin until we get to this particular chapter um, and God addressing Cain, but that in the in the the Latin that missing of the mark um, that I always say that sin is not a measurement of how bad you are; it is a measurement of how good you're not. Um, that sin uh, is uh, is a rebellion against God's rule, His design. It's a rejection of His grace. And the little things that we do wrong, uh, or even the big things that we do wrong, is the outcome of what I call sins plural, are the outworkings of the sin nature. 
And the sin nature means that the human heart um, in a fallen state, in a fallen world, will rebel against God. It will. So let's consider this, this idea of Cain's rebellion. Is that Cain, uh, it's easy to read into this in a way that um, God is, uh, is condemning Cain. Um, and the idea that God had regard for Abel and his offering uh, doesn't mean that he was mad at Cain. There is, it says, what father doesn't correct their child uh, in Scripture? There's, what God is actually utilizing is this is an opportunity for Cain to respond. Like, why are you angry at your brother? And, and why, are you, why are you discouraged? I'm telling you that I see. I'm the God who sees into the hearts of things. And you're, there is, there is a, a, a battle happening in you, and you're losing that battle. And I, I think it's so fascinating that sin is personified here. But his, his statement um, that, that if you do well, sin is crouching at the door. His desire is for you, essentially. But you must rule over it. There is, a, there is something to this that seems to be pointing to a reality that... Um, that there is, there is, even in this point in human history, there is power, at least, uh, in the ability to be honest before God. I don't think that we, I don't know how you can read into this and think that, that one can conquer sin in their own strength. Um, and the fact is, is that God is interacting with Cain personally. I don't think what God is saying is, you know, your works need to be better, you need to try harder. I think what he's saying is, I'm here. I'm available. Turn to me. Rest in me. Rely upon me. Uh, but that's not what Cain does. And so uh, I, I, I'm forced uh, to interpret this through the lens of the gospel. We're told that all have fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, so I don't think that Cain had some ability of sinless perfection. Sin is entered in. Rebellion has entered the world, but God is, God is still a God of redemption, and God is a God who is continually inviting people to trust him, to, to have faith in him. This is why Abrahamic faith is given to us as the model of what true faith has always been. And so even before um, the covenant that comes to us, the new covenant through Jesus, uh, there is still a call for humanity to believe in God and to trust him with their lives. And Cain is not doing that. And that's the essence of rebellion against God's rule and his grace, is to not trust him, to not believe that he has our best in mind. Um, and so I think there's a lot that can be learned from this. Um, and I also think that this is one of the ultimate pictures of what uh, Rene Girard calls uh, the mimetic process, which is that sin entering into the world creates, um, uh, creates in us desire. And desire is one of the chief ingredients of what it means to be image bearers of God. We are designed to desire intimacy with God, but sin has caused us to turn that desire upon the creature rather than the creator. And this is why um, Gerard believes that covetousness is actually at the root um, if you turn the Ten Commandments upside down, thou shall not covet. He's like, if you actually didn't covet, you wouldn't lie, you wouldn't steal, you wouldn't commit adultery, and you wouldn't kill. 
which is, and that is the order of things. He argues that everything, it, all of the woes of human existence is driven by our desire for what others have. And that in fact, our longing for what the neighbor has, he argues, is what creates desire. So that mimetic desire, that all that desires don't come naturally out of the human heart. Um, our, our desires are actually birthed by seeing what someone else has. I want what they have. And he uses all these examples in literature that you have these three, the, the, tri the love triangle, three friends, two guys, one girl, and they're all friends. And then one of the guys falls in love with the girl, which births within the other guy a longing for what the one has. And now you have conflict and you have this and you have a tension that ultimately leads in violence and the scapegoating mechanism and all of these things. He's like, it's written into all of our literature. It's written into our history. Um, and I think this is one of the first places you see it. There is jealousy. Cain is no longer looking at God. He's looking at his failure in light of his brother and he hates his brother for it. Um, and I think that this is, uh, this is a classic example of that mimetic process being played out. Here, um, so we move on, uh, and I think that, um, uh, and I just want to be clear that this is not a condemnation by God. This is an encouragement to do what is right. Um, so, verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. So the first murder in Scripture. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother he said i don't know am i my brother's keeper uh what a profound question uh one is that, that cain is asking um, and the lord said what have you done the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. This is a fascinating statement. First of all, the question, am I my brother's keeper? Um, is The answer is yes. And this is why the two central commands of Scripture is what? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor. Your neighbor as yourself. Now, Here's the thing that's important about that very statement is that loving, um, loving our neighbor um, is loving our brother, our sister. Uh, that our neighbor is whoever is beside us, in front of us, behind us at any given point, in any given day. And we are called to be uh, responsible for one another. We are called to participate in one another's lives. Uh, and this is one of the ways in which we please God. Uh, it's not in our attempts to be sinless or, you know, to stop doing this thing or that thing. It, it's about a, a willingness to walk in the light, to be close to God um, and to open up our lives not only to him but to, uh, to others where we are now accountable to a family, if you will. And so this statement, just it is deeply connected to God's own statement over Adam, it's not good that man be alone. Uh, and Cain, instead of being one who cares for um, his brother, who loves his brother, who protects his brother, in jealousy and in unchecked anger, um, takes his brother's life. And just so you know, I watched 
more Christians become, uh, become radicalized during COVID and anger seemed to fuel much of the conversation, like a fury over the state of affairs. Even I found myself just getting angry at the politics in our city and like ideologies that seem to just push against the very fabric of what it means to be a Christian. And it's not surprising to me that Christians fell into the trappings of things like Christian nationalism or even fell into the trappings of the left of social agendas. The radicalization, all I can say is this, Nothing created an us-against-them mentality like the last three years did. And there is no us-against-them as followers of Jesus. There's only us-for-them. It doesn't mean that we accept every ideology. It doesn't mean that we don't recognize sin where sin is being played out. But we are not allowed to hate our enemies. And if you're a person who posts vitriolic statements about the state of affairs on Facebook, stop it. You're just adding to the, the nauseating, uh, ineffective, you're not helping anyone and you're not helping yourself. Because uh, I knew a lot of people at the church during this time that just allowed anger to go unchecked. And what was fascinating is they were one way at church and then you'd go, someone's like, have you seen this person's Facebook page? And then there's like, it was like they were a complete stranger to me. It's amazing how confrontational we are from the privacy of our bedroom on a computer. Um, we're so tough when no one's around, right? Um, and, and it's like, who is this human being? I know this person. They can't be doing this. But I think it's the, it's the nature. Human beings are not meant to hold anger is my point. We're not meant to hold it. So why are we fueling it? What we need to be praying is that God would protect our hearts from becoming hardened um, and inflamed against others because it does the exact opposite um, to our lives of what Jesus has called us to be, which is conduits of his grace. And grace is always unfair. And that is what God has called us to give to, to people around us. Um, and if we remembered what he's given to us, uh, we, would not, um, we would not be killing people with our minds and with our words, um, and sometimes even actually just killing people. Uh, and I think that this is the, the violence in the heart um, according to Jesus, is as real as the violence of the hand. Uh, and this is why it says, anyone who is angry with his brother, without anyone who is angry with, with, um, with his brother, New King James says, without cause. That was an addition. It's not there. It's just whoever is angry with his brother is a murderer. Wow. What do you do with that? Um, uh, all I know is it just makes me this way. Jesus, help me, because I get angry every day. That cyclists, I want to kill them all. Some of you are cyclists, and I'm sorry. I may have tried to kill you at some point, and this is why we need Jesus. Notice what else he says. Now you're cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to its strength. This is the first time that a curse is placed upon a person. And, 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 and I would say, when we say curse, um, I, I think that uh, it's, it's important to recognize that it's a severe judgment that's being passed. The ground is cursed so that it would be difficult to toil. Now Cain is cursed in his ability to, to actually cultivate the ground, which is going to turn him into a perpetual wanderer. You are a person now without home. You have rejected, you have rejected you have rejected me, 
you have violated the very essence of what it means to be human. You've taken your own brother's life. And notice what Cain says to the Lord. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face shall I be hidden. There it is again, the motif that is being played out um, uh, of hiding from the Lord as a result of sin, uh, which appears in Genesis chapter three, when our first parents recognized they were naked, they heard God walking in the garden and they hid. Um, the outcome of sin is, uh, is often hiding. The essence of our lives as Christians is constantly fighting against the urge to hide our brokenness. I think the thing that pleases God is not our futile attempts at perfection, but our willingness to continually come into the light and be exposed. And it's the thing that frees us and actually is the thing that, that begins to change our behavior as well. When you come into the light, there is a freedom, a dropping of shackles that happens when we live in the light. Um, and we have to fight against that urge to hide. Um, and it, we all do it. We all do it. And then the Lord said to him, not so. Notice the God of mercy here um, starts showing up. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain. We don't know what that mark is, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Um, uh, just so you know, the land of Nod literally means the land of the wanderer. Um, so it's a place without home. Uh, so it, it just essentially means like wilderness wandering. Uh, but I think a more important phrase that's used here is a phrase that we're told um, that is, is often utilized again in scripture that's very connected to that relational reality that's at the heart of what it means to be an image bearer. And um, sin, the reality that it is destruction of relationship in three directions is that Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. Cain went away from God. God did not go away from Cain. Um, and I think that it's, I think we read more into it than we ought to. Um, Cain received real judgment for a actual act, uh, a crime of passion. He takes his brother's life due to jealousy and unchecked anger. Um, and God says, listen, there is, there, there are consequences to these actions, and this is the consequence of this action. But God's wrath here, his anger um, his, uh, at Cain's, uh, Cain's action is not a rejection of Cain, but Cain definitely rejects God. Um, it says he went away from the presence of the Lord. It does not say that the Lord would not um, allow him into, uh, into his presence. It says Cain made a choice to wander away from the Lord. This is too much. I can't do it. I'm not going to do it. He leaves. So Cain knew his wife. So this is a, a new, new piece of narrative. Cain knew his wife. We don't know her name. Just Cain's wife. And she conceived and bore Enoch. Note that. People often don't notice that there are two Enochs in Genesis. Um, and this, the first Enoch is not the Enoch who walked with God, but it is Cain's son. And the word Enoch, the name Enoch means dedicated. And here we begin to see the birth of civilization. Let me just say that everything cool and fun comes through Cain's line, 
not Seth's line. Uh, civilization, as we, as we know it, comes through the line of Cain. It's fascinating. She conceived and bore Enoch, and when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. I think that this is important for us to note. It is a city dedicated to man. It's dedicated to man. The name means dedicated. And, and Cain dedicates the outcome as a wanderer, um, as one who has left the presence of God, and he builds the first city. Uh, and that city is a, is, is a marker of what man can do apart from God. This is a theme that we will hit on again and again, and it will culminate in Babel. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujal, and Mahujal fathered Methushal, and Methushal fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. Now we have um, a, a perversion brought into the marriage covenant, um, uh, which is insane, and it's still being practiced today. There's shows that you can watch. There's a show called Sister Brides. It's, a, it's in its 16th season. I think it's like that many seasons, where it's just a man who has got like four or five wives and like 36 kids or something crazy. Um, and none of it looks fun. None of that looks fun to me. Um, it's fascinating, like a weird science experiment, like something you can't take your eye, like a, like a wreck that you can't take your eyes away from. But here you see a, a twisting of what God intended. So uh, polygamy now is introduced into the world. The name of the one was Ada and the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Now you have, uh, here you have um, industry coming into play. Cities are being built. Now you have musical instruments. Look at, through the line of Cain. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. What a great name. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. Weapons, tools uh, uh, come through the line of Cain. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Now, notice that the point of this is that sin is increasing. Uh, rebellion, uh, men are moving further and further away from the heart of God, God's intent. And the very sin of Cain is now being played out in the generations that follow. And we are all the products um, of, our, of what has come before. We are the products of our family's history. So when it says the sins of the father, I don't believe in in generational curses uh, as um, some within charisma, but I do believe in the very real reality of sin being played out and being in, um, in us repeating the patterns. I repeat patterns of my father, my father repeated patterns of his father and his father and so on. Uh, I wouldn't call that a generational curse. I would just call it the nature of cause and effect um, in the putting into motion um, the very uh, reality that what we do impacts other people's lives, uh, that we don't live in a vacuum, uh, that what you do, uh, if you have kids, how you live in front of them will shape them. 
um, whether they want to be shaped by it or not. Everyone hates that. Like, like I just don't want to be my mother. And then you're like, oh my gosh, I'm becoming my mother, aren't I? This is the state. I was deeply impacted by my father's personality, and I didn't even grow up with him. But there are so many aspects that have been passed on to me, even at, from a genetic level. <laughs> um, so I think that these are, these are things that we need to understand. Uh, in sin, uh, this is one of the ways that sin plays itself out in human history um, and continues to magnify and steamroll, if you will, uh, and, become, and can become, uh, if it wasn't for God's intervention, uh, it, it, we can see how quickly it can overtake uh, a society. Once again, I would say that's one of the most profound aspects of COVID that I've ever seen is the church closed its doors and we already thought the world was bad. And we're like, can it actually get worse? And then, and then to our surprise, we're like, wow, it can get way worse really fast. And it reminds me of that passage um, that, that the lawless one will be revealed when the restrainer is removed. It's a mysterious verse. Um, my gut tells me that's the spirit of God restraining evil. And it made me realize that the church is a restraint our very presence in this city is a restraint against evil. Now, don't get me wrong. There's plenty of evil in Portland, but it's not as evil as it could be. And this is why the church needs to be here. Um, and when the church doors were closed, it just went crazy. I mean, it did. It really did. It's like our city went insane in less than three months uh, and it, while the church was not able to meet. And it shows me that there is a restrainer, there's a spiritual reality of us basically putting a restraint on how far sin can go, even if we don't know it. I really believe that with all my heart. Um, so let's move on. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. And she said, notice, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him to Seth also. A son was born and he called his name Enosh, at that time, began, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Um, now, it's worth, it's worth noting here um, uh, that this line, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord, that you see the beginnings of, of um, worship, kind of formalized worship, that's beginning, uh, and through Adam's line, God is once again the author of this narrative, and he has not lost his grip upon the story. Um, but let's look at these descendants, because I love this part of the, the story. It's, it's really fascinating. Keep in mind um, that this is a lineage that is linking. Moses is giving the children of Israel their own cosmology, their own history, and he is here laying out descendants from Adam to Noah. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'm not here to speculate on why people live so long and they don't live that long now. Uh, and I, what I believe is that the scripture is true witness. Uh, and there is, uh, I think that there are times mythopic language used to tell of true things. I don't personally have an issue with the ages. I don't think we should, uh, we should question them. I think that it's close enough to to the origin of things. Uh, and as you see, the ages get less and less. And I think that that even speaks to the, uh, the reality of sin's uh, continual diminishment 
diminishing returns, if you will, upon uh, the world as we know it. And we were created to continue. I think that it's also important to, to remember that we are made to last. Um, and so, uh, though the outward man is perishing, the inward man is being uh, daily renewed. So it says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female. So here is a, a repetition of um, God's unique uh, center of his creation, which is humanity. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created or mankind. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. I just want to point out something, because this list is so awesome. Uh, it's so awesome at how stinking boring it is. It's like they just live, these people, like nothing is, we're not told anything about them. Cain's building cities. They got weapons. They got tools. They got flutes. And we got nothing. Just people just live for stupid lengths of time, this really long amounts of time. And, but there's significance in that, and we'll get to it in just a second. You're like, this guy is not a Bible teacher. What is he talking about right now? When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Nothing, I guess we did, there's nothing we need to know about that man, uh, along with the next several. Uh, and when Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalal, Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. And Mahalalel had lived 65 years. He fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, uh, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God. And he was not, for God took him. Okay, that's interesting. Enoch walked with God. It's the first time that phrase is used. Um, and once again, it speaks to, what does it speak to? Relationship. Cain walks away out of the presence of God. God walks in the garden toward our first parents who are hiding from God. But now we have in the godly line, we have, they says when, after Seth is born, they begin to call upon the name of the Lord again. And God hears that and we're told through this, through this line, this is God's redemptive history. And it is fascinating if you were actually to map out these ages. Um, it means that 
um, that Noah, um, uh, these generational um, ages that, that Noah n knew, uh, knew many of these people because they lived so long. Uh, but here's the fascinating thing with this. Enoch walks with God and he was not for God took him. So we are told specifically in Hebrews um, that it is appointed once for man to die and then comes the judgment. There are two characters in scripture that did not taste death as we understand death. And that is Enoch and Elijah. There are some um, who take a, um, a, a interpretation that the two witnesses in Revelation um, must be um, uh, Enoch and Elijah because they need to die because that's the way it works. I actually don't really have a problem with that interpretation because not even God escaped death. So it just seems unlikely um, that there's going to be two people that just get to bypass that. But, you know, I don't know. Maybe we're wrong. Uh, I think what's important is that what is stated about this person um, isn't what he did, but who he knew. It's not what he did. He walked with God. So that's what he did, which means that he's one who walked in the light. He's one who trusted God. Doesn't mean he was sinless. Doesn't mean that he did everything right. It's just that he walked with the only one who was. Um, and, and so I think that it, this is incredibly important. And remember what I said the name Enoch means? Dedicated to. The first Enoch is dedicated to the work of man. City is named after him. Dedicated to, the, the, to what man can do apart from God. The second Enoch is defined, his name is defined by his dedication to his creator. And he doesn't see death. And I think that this is something that is pointing us to the great reality of what relationship with God means for us at its core. It means life. It means living, really living. That when you refuse relationship with Jesus, you're actually rejecting life. I think that's so profound. He does not see death. And you know what else I would say is that the one who is truly alive and walks with God is one who has learned how the reason he didn't see death is because he figured out one of the greatest mysteries of human existence that the only ones who truly live are those that learn how to daily die. The ones who learn how to die to themselves, die to that desire to be my own God, to be my own definer of my existence. He died to that temptation again and again. And here is a picture of what is possible for us as Christians now. Resurrection life for us now is available now we can enjoy heaven on the way to heaven because I have been what crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I don't think Enoch saw death because I think he figured out the fascinating truth that the one who dies to themselves every day is the only one who's ever truly alive. It's just my thought, a little pastoral thought for you. Um, it's a fascinating story though. Uh, and I mean, it'd be cool to be one of two people in heaven, you're like, dude, how, if God himself died, 
you never died. That's fascinating. And if he doesn't, so I just think his is still coming. That's what I think. <laughs> but I think there's a beautiful picture of what it means to walk with God here. Walking with God is walking in the light. It's entrusting your life, putting your, hand, your life in his hands. And I always like to say, God doesn't want this or that part of you. He doesn't want your problems um, or he doesn't want your best parts. He just wants the whole thing, which means that he gets the problems and the best parts. He gets your stupid parts and he gets your smart parts. He gets, he gets your ugly past and he gets your hopeful future. All of it's his. And what he wants is not you sorting yourself out. He wants responsibility for you. So give it to him. Give it to him. Lay your life down at his feet. It's worth it. It's an adventure. So, what does it say? When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. Relief. Uh, man, this just keeps going. Uh, and when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from, our pain, and from the painful toil of our hands. Notice the first prophetic word spoken by a human over another human. Lamech lived after his father Noah. Uh, I mean, if, exclude Eve um, naming uh, uh, Cain and Abel. But I think this is a prophetic, uh, a, a promise, a redemptive promise is spoken over, um, over Noah by his father. And Noah um, fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, we go back to the corruption of humanity. Notice there's, there's this cool narrative pattern of God's redemptive purposes being played out and the increasing reality of sin in the world. Um, and as it steamrolls. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took them as their wives, um, any they chose. Then the Lord said, my, sh my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. Uh, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, they were mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Okay, let's just talk about this for a second because it's an absolutely fascinating verse with so much speculation around it. Um, there have been many that have tried to create a rational understanding. First of all, we're talking about people, we just got done talking about people that lived 900 years, okay? so. I don't know why people would like just pick and choose what they're comfortable with and what they're not comfortable with. It's, it's like Christians are like, I don't believe in demons. I'm like, but you believe that Jesus died for the sins of the world? They're like, of course. I'm like, I, it just seems like, like you've already crossed the line of what most of humanity would consider reasonable. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm like, if you can believe in Jesus as the sin bearer of the world, you can believe in the devil uh, in the dominions of darkness. One of the great debates around this particular passage is what, who are we talking about when we're talking about um, the daughters of man and the sons of God? 
And the, the, the conservative interpretation is that the sons of God is the godly line um, uh, living in an ungodly way. But it does not at all answer the question of, well, yeah, but like, then what are the Nephilim? And why do they seem to be like superhuman? Um, they, these were mighty men who were of old and men of renown. Now, we have to keep in mind that the Bible is a, is a, a holy book that is anchored in human history and comes from a particular place in the world where many uh, mythologies were birthed. Uh, and, and within the, at the root of, I, I am definitely um, an advocate for understanding mythologies to always have at the back of them some semblances of truth. Um, I don't believe the scripture is mythology, um, even if it uses mythopic language, but mythologies were being birthed all around the place where scripture was written. Uh, and what are the, what's, what is uh, some of the things that you would think of when you think of uh, men of renown or supernatural origins where you seem to have almost gods on earth. If you look at Greek and Roman mythology, um, characters like Hercules or Perseus, I, I think that a lot of the worship of the, the Greek and Roman mythology comes from those ancient mystery religions of, of the near Far East um, and probably have their origin possibly even in this. Who knows? But the question that arises out of this text is that the most appropriate interpretation of sons of God is that it seems to be fallen angels or some sort of angelic being, some sort of spiritual being, Elohim, as it's called, the, these, these created beings that, are, that sit within a spiritual domain. The question is, is, can a spiritual being have intercourse with a physical being? I don't know. But some people seem to think they know. And they're like, it's not possible. I heard one commentator, like, it's not possible because angels um, don't get married, so they must be sexless. I, it doesn't say that. Every time they appear, they seem to be young, beautiful men. Uh, and um, Jesus himself showed us this crazy reality of his resurrection body, of both being corporal and spiritual. Um, uh, you know, I don't know what's going on, but there's some sort of merging of the supernatural with the natural, the seen and the unseen. Call it possession, call it whatever you want, but it produces something akin to superhumans. And I'm, I've seen enough weird stuff in my lifetime uh, to, to just, I don't find that that outrageous. Uh, and so I think that all I know is, I don't know what the Nephilim are. I heard one guy like say that, the Nephilim are still around and they're gonna come back and um, deceive us pretending to be aliens. Let's not go in there. All I know is in this text, it clearly is saying something more than just, uh, just people having sex with people they shouldn't be having sex with. It seems to be a, um, a perversion of God's order in such a way that it brings about God's decision to destroy the world as we know it. Okay, or as they knew it, I should say. The Lord saw that, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Um, just in case you want to ask the question, is God, um, if God knows everything, 
that, uh, that is. Um, uh, he already knew this was going to happen. Um, so, uh, so, you know, that means that he can't be moved by it. Uh, but that's not what scripture says. Whether he already knew it was going to happen, he seems to honor creation in the sense that he allows himself to be impacted by it in real time, <laughs> even though he sits in time in a different way. And I don't, I don't need to speculate about that. But all it says, all I know here is that God is saddened by the state of affairs. He is grieved by the sin and the rebellion that has entered into his world. Um, and that the Lord saw, and here is one of the key verses that will be used again and again to describe the nature of man um, in a fallen state, that the intention of the thoughts of the heart are, um, was only evil continually. Um, what does Jesus say? Out of the heart proceeds all sorts of wickedness. This is why it is a dangerous thing when we are told again and again in our society, in our culture, to follow our what? Our heart. I would say maybe not, maybe not. Uh, and the heart um, in the Hebrew mind is the seat. Um, it is the very seat of emotions and the will. And it is, um, it, is, it is a place where our feelings and our thought life come together um, and it is a powerful influencer. This is why people, when they fall in love with a bad person, it doesn't matter you have, you're a parent, you watch your kid fall in love with someone that you know is not the right person for him. You're like, how can they not see it? Because they're in love. And love is powerful. And it blinds us. Um, and that's why we are what we love. <laughs> we are defined by what we love. Um, and this is why you shouldn't trust your heart. And this is why it, scripture is also clear that we are given a new heart. Um, and a new heart is very important for us. Um, in understanding uh, the importance of being born again. God is saddened by the intention of the thoughts of the heart of humanity at this point in creation's history and that it's set on evil continually. And look what it goes on to say. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things and the birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. Um, it's crazy. And you're like, what does that mean? I think it just means what it says, which means things had to have been pretty bad. Um, and this is where I say God's sovereignty is his freedom to do what he wants. Um, uh, in accordance, with, in accordance with his character and his nature. And thank God that um, the, the um, scales seem to tip toward mercy, um, but this is why it's so shocking when we see such an extreme judgment, which I would simply say it must have been a very, very evil reality. Um, sin does not, ha does not exist without parameters, and this is one of those moments where God himself is saying sin shall go no farther. Um, and I think that's important for us to, to understand. For I am sorry that I made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor. And there we see one who's pleasing God through his surrender to God and his will. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. That is so fascinating. All flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. Um, 
By the way, that's uh, considered one of the greatest novels of the 20th century, The End of All Flesh. And I just want you to know that it's a terrible book and super boring, so don't read it. For all the flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof of the ark and finish it um, to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. And make it with lower second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, Two of every sort shall come into, uh, into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Um, you know, there's lots of drawings online of what the ark looks like. It seems to be like a giant, a giant square. Um, when I first got saved, there was a guy that I worked with as an atheist, and he loved to just rail on me about th things in the Bible that I feel ultimately I'm like, I'm, yeah, I'm not going to enter into this conversation with you. But be, I remember he's like, so Noah's Ark, was there a freshwater tank on that boat? How did the fish survive in the sea if, there's, if, it's, if the whole world was covered with the ocean? Freshwater fish could, I'm like, I don't know, man, maybe there's a freshwater tank. And that I realized the best thing to do in that, at that point is like, I'm like, let's just start with Jesus. Because um, once you come to terms with Jesus, I'm like, I don't, it's not hard for me to accept scripture once I've accepted the center of scripture. Uh, and I think that the important thing of here is God's what's important about this story is God's determination to not to put away sin and God at the exact same time his determination to preserve sinners what a fascinating thing here um, now we're going back to the theme of verse two, uh, verse 3 of Genesis 1 separating separation God separates for himself um, uh, a family that he can move human history um, forward. And what happens again? Evil begins to um, perpetuate itself again and again. And men did what was right in their own eyes, as, uh, as you see as the story progresses, that sin takes, uh, takes its toll. But this is a reset, a profound reset uh, in human history. There's all kinds of debate whether the flood, we'll consider that next week, whether it was a local flood or a global flood. Uh, I think that we should probably take the story for what it is um, and, and trust in God's word. We are talking about prehistory, um, uh, and, and prehistory means that uh, any, anything other than what the text gives us is speculation, uh, and I don't have an issue with God's, if he says I'm going to wipe out everything with breath in its, in its lungs, I don't think that's, a, doesn't seem to be a poetic statement. It's not given to us in poetry form. Um, and Noah and his family is preserved 
and um, and human history moves forward after um, after the arc.